Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Ed Pollard's had a fascinating career in Victoria Police. He's worked extensively at inner city stations before becoming an observer at the police air wing. Ed then qualified as a prosecutor, which led to him working at the State Coroner's Assistant Unit and tours to Bali after the bombing and Thailand after the tsunami. He specialised in DVI, or Disaster Victim Identification, and was seconded as the mortuary coordinator for the bushfires, before being sent to Melbourne prosecutions. Ed was diagnosed with PTSD and is now transitioning into retirement via his long service leave. Hi Ed, and a big warm welcome to The Crime Couch. Thanks very much, Rochelle. Nice to meet you. What motivated you originally, a long time ago, to join Victoria Police, Ed? To be honest, there was a show called Police Story on by Joseph Wambauer, which was an American police show. And at the time, I was a little bit between what I wanted to do. And I thought, oh, well, might as well try and serve the community and join the police force, which I was fortunately able to do back in 1980. Was any member of the family in the job? I had an uncle who was a country cop. He's, a, I think, a 1-4 number, I think he was. He joined after World War Two. In fact, it might have been a 494 number. So, but uh, apart from him, no one else, no. Early in your career, Ed, you were based at St Albans and Flemington Police Stations. What are the memories of those stations that have still stuck with you? With St Albans, Mario Calario was a St Albans cowboy. He'd ride down Main Road West in a cowboy outfit on a horse. And it's where I learnt to pronounce the surname of Zwareb, which is a Maltese name, which is X-U-R-E-R-B, I think it is. And that's where I learned to dance that. And everyone, there's a lot of high Yugoslavian content population at that time. And everyone in my country, your job, Sergeant. So I was promoted several times by the population. Like, those, a couple of those stations don't that you've sort of worked at now don't even exist. Is that right? That's right. St Albans was a little old house. And at the interview room, the back wall of that was the back of the lockers. So uh, interesting interviewing people when people are coming in getting changed for work and stuff. So there, that's, that's now Keeler Downs patrols St Albans. So I believe you had some experience with the Walsh Street Crims at Flemington, is that right? Yeah, that's right. A couple would come in and sign on for bail. But apart from that, really no other interaction out. out. We didn't come across them in the street, but they, a couple of them were required to attend Flemington to report on bail. Did you ever have any sort of interactions with them? No. No, 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 no. Just in and out as quick as they could, thanks very much. Just uh, sign the book and away they go. Yeah. You worked as an observer in the air wing, Ed. What were your highlights? And I love particular in the notes that you sent me originally for this interview, you described yourself as a human teabag. Can you explain what that means? Well, part of the observer's duty is the winch operator and a winch, someone has to go down on the winch. And there's one night we went out to Bass Strait because there was a boat in trouble. And I was sitting in the back of the helicopter in a wetsuit and at that stage was proposed to drop me into Bass Strait to try and rescue people out of the life raft. And so I described myself as a tea bag, that's exactly what we've been doing, dunked into the water. And the other thing about the air wing, we navigated with the Malways on our knees. 
no GPS or anything like that. So it was a case of setting the pilot off to a major like um, Doncaster Shopping Centre or the Westgate Bridge and then you're madly trying to find the streets until they go here and circle there and there and stuff. And people would say, you're looking out for a red Commodore. It's amazing how many red Commodores suddenly exist. <laughs> I bet. And no Google Maps, I'd imagine, in those days. Oh, no, it's just Melrose, that's all. And they had um, aviation maps for the rural jobs. It was an interesting job, great job. What were some of the good things you loved about working as an observer? Just the, the places you flew to. It was fantastic. Like you're going up to Mount Buller, we did a training exercise up there for a few days, or down to Pambula Beach, or down across, flying across Western Port Bay and Port Phillip Bay, stuff like that. And the winching was interesting because as a winch operator, you're controlling the aircraft, you're telling the pilot to move right, move left, stop moving left, stop moving right, at the same time, trying to manage the winch down there so that was a that was a a really interesting and fulfilling job but tough and a very unusual experience too I'd imagine because as you said you're really reliant on your whole crew I, I suppose to keep you safe yeah exactly it's a team effort and I remember one pilot said to me one day we've got dual aircraft air controls here if I have a heart attack how are you going to land the aircraft so let's land the aircraft so I got to land it once out at the airport which is an interesting thing it's like tapping your head and rubbing your belly at the same time, if you know what I mean. I do. You then left the police air wing. Why did you become a police prosecutor, Ed? Oh, look, I'd had several years on the street at busy police stations and I just needed a break. I just needed a change in career. The shift work was starting to get the better of me, night shifts and stuff, and so I thought I'd try something else, a prosecutor. When I was at Mooney Ponds, there was a prosecutions unit at Mooney Ponds. doesn't not there anymore. So I had a lot of interaction with the prosecutors and I thought, it was an interesting job. I know my dear father, Bill Jackson, was a police prosecutor and it was one of the things he absolutely loved. But he said you'd be thrown a brief the morning that you had to go to court. Is that what occurred? It did. When Calgulio was commissioner, he decided that they needed a specialised prosecutions unit branch. So that was created along with a research and training unit that obviously trained the prosecutors. But yeah, my early days, I remember the section sergeant was given the briefs and off you go to court next door and off you go and brief. When I was at, when I was at Connie, the, but about a year later that changed. I think that's when the prosecution's branch came into and they got specialist prosecutors because, no disrespect to the section sergeant, but you going up against professionally trained solicitors, defence solicitors. So wisely they thought we'll train prosecutors specifically and it gets to the stage now where I think the prosecutions win about 70 or 80 percent of their cases they they go up in the summary the summary courts and you're up against defense counsel that are really briefed and are commissioned to do just that one case that's right yeah like you might be going in with 80 to 100 cases which you're sort of reading off the cuff but mainly it's a summary so you, if you go to contest and you get time to prepare for it but you're right job against uh, solicitors being briefed for a specific case so, yeah, it's interesting. What did that role in prosecutions teach you about cases and about the legal system? Well, fail to prepare is to prepare to fail. So what it taught me, you've got to really thoroughly research a case, the law, the case law around it, get in your head a line of cross-examination you might have against a defendant if they get into the witness box because they're not obliged to get in the witness box. That's up to them. I've had cases where they've decided not to give evidence. The legal system is an interesting case. I won't comment any further on that. 
After working in prosecutions and when you went back into operational policing after that, did it change the way that you did your briefs or did it change the way you looked at crims? I actually didn't go back in operation after prosecutions. What it did, it gave me a, an appreciation of the briefs we received to prosecute that were supposed to be you know, properly checked and stuff. And in a lot of cases, they weren't up to scratch, to be honest with you. I appreciate that the people checking the briefs had 15,000 things to do as a, as a sergeant at a police station. Although that happened, I could understand why it would happen, where they, they weren't checked properly because the poor old sergeants, that's the last thing he wants to do is check a heap of briefs for, for court, but had to be done. Having been a section sergeant, I know the pressure on a section sergeant. And I think the other thing that I can remember my father speaking about was the attention to detail. Even as someone who is preparing a brief of evidence, you've got to have everything absolutely correct, don't you? Well, that's right, yeah, because the magistrate doesn't appreciate the pressure that the brief check is under. All he or she wants is a properly prepared prosecution case. Yeah, it, the attention to detail has got to be there because the presumption of a person in court is innocence and we have to prove their guilt, not the other way around. Ed, you were then sent to Bali after the bombing and Thailand after the tsunami. How would you describe these tours of duty? That's the Bali. It was sort of towards the end of the time over there, I suppose. With Thailand, I was absolutely... I went there in March 2005 and it happened in obviously 2004 and I was just blown away by the size of the response and by the size of the disaster like there was thousands of people because what happened a place called Kaolak about an hour and a half north of Phuket they launched a campaign in Europe to say you know it's freezing cold in Europe come to Thailand and it worked most of the European countries lost hundreds of people Australia had lost 14 but because we had a very good relationship with the Australian Federal Police and the Thai Police we were on the ground running and a particular inspector who was sent over there two days after the disaster was confronted in a monastery, sorry, with about 1,500 bodies just left there because they took them to the temple because of their religious stuff. And they, there you go, over to you. So they had to get containers and all sorts of things set up and a mortuary set up and stuff. It was an um, amazing effort by Inspector Wayne Martin, it was. An extraordinary experience. And one I'd imagine you'd never be able to equate with circumstances here what was the overwhelming feeling when you got over there again just the size of what we were dealing with i'll explain the dvi process to you later but a reconciliation room there were literally hundreds of filing cabinets four or five high in the room containing the files of the deceased people the teamwork again was overwhelming because you're dealing with police from new zealand from denmark from germany from Austria for all sorts of things. In fact, one of the funny things is a poster in the in the room. It says Austria, and it had a, a, a kangaroo with crossed out, not Australia. Oh, <laughs> that that was um, interesting dealing with all the different police forces from predominantly Europe, but there was a couple of Asian police forces, and that uh, interaction was interesting. What do you consider your greatest achievement when you were working on those tours of duty? Obviously, we had to present our cases when the, a file was completed to the Thai authorities, and I had to present that a few times. And to have that presented and them to say, we agree with the evidence and sign off the identification papers and have those remains identified and sent back to their respective countries and families was very, very satisfying. 
that would give you a reason as to why you were over there, I'd imagine. That'd fulfill your feeling of that you were there for a purpose. Oh, yeah. Look, it was a historical event, and to be part of that event was made me very proud to be part of it and be able to take part of it. There had to be request forms for Thailand from the particular people's families, and a lot of the requests for children came from grandparents, which suggested that the parents no longer were there either, so whole families were brought there. It must have just been so overwhelming to deal with so many bodies and so many people that had deceased. Yeah, and and as I said, they were, were over there for a reason because they weren't visibly, visibly identifiable after about a couple of days because of the heat. And, of course, they were placed in shipping containers, refrigerated, but every now and again the, refriger- the electricity would fail on one of the containers, which was not pleasant. And what's the way the mortuary worked was interesting was the processes in there. I went up my first uh, week there, I was able to get up to the mortuary at Kaolak, and just in there, just the way they, the process they worked, they got one out in the door, laid them all out. There was just a whole floor full of bodies with pathologists and dentists and all fingerprint experts. And that was amazing to watch that work too. Like, for example, one of the techniques the FBI worked out was for decomposed hand to be placed in boiling water, which fluffs it out so they could take fingerprints. And I remember seeing you watching that and thought, oh, that's got to hurt. And I thought, well, no, it's not going to hurt. <laughs> that sort of stuff was just interesting to see all that sort of work on that scale. I remember when I was working for Channel 7 and I interviewed a forensic dentist who went over there and he'd come from Melbourne and he'd never experienced the level of identification and what was required, as you've just said, the extremes you had to go to to find out and ascertain someone's ID and DNA. Yeah, well, that's the whole process. There's dental and there's fingerprints and there's DNA and property and all sorts of whole combination of things that have got to come together. If it's, if it's a dental match or a fingerprint match, that's pretty well 100%. you still got to account for, like, like I remember for the bushfires, there was a particular football club membership recovered, so we had to sort of make inquiries with that particular football club who owned that membership, things like that. So it was a huge process, huge process. In your role, Ed, you also presented evidence to the coroner in Australia and Thai officials, didn't you? That's right, yeah. Part of the role was, again, once the file was, and the complex files, we had to present them to a coroner in a formal hearing, identification hearing, and at the end of which they would sign off, he or she would sign off as this person's Ed Pollard, and then they could release the Ed Pollard back to his family, so that was good. After my role as mortuary coordinator ended, I was also put in charge of QA, quality assurance of the files, myself and another senior sergeant, so we had to go through every file um, to make sure they were of sufficient quality to be presented to the board, so you had gained an intimate knowledge of each case, which was interesting. Working in DVI must have been one of the most challenging roles in emergency services, Ed. How did you deal with so much death and so much tragedy? No particular way, to be honest with you. Fortunately, I was able to, my wife was a a nurse, and so fortunately she, I I felt comfortable talking to her about it without actually naming names, but just the general day. So that was a a good coping mechanism to be able to talk about it on a daily basis rather than keep it inside. Look, I guess, as it turned out, it probably accumulated with the the bushfire stuff and all that other stuff into the, the PTSD. 
What's been the biggest challenge in the job and how did you deal with it, Ed? I guess one day I was at Flemington, was he, we were called down to the, the flats, the walk-ups, not the high-rise. The next thing is young bloke starts stabbing at the van with a switch knob, switch blade. So I eventually got out and I was able to point my firearm at him and sort of say, you know, drop the knife, drop the knife sort of thing. And he kept advancing and I had a line drawn and at which stage if we went past I probably would have discharged my firearm. Fortunately he stopped and dropped the knife and it turned out later he was deaf. And that's why he was agitated because he was being bullied by the, the other youth on the the choking. So we didn't we didn't realise that he was deaf and of course he he was agitated. So that was one of the bigger challenges, having nearly come close to shooting him and would have been finding out later that he was deaf and that's why he, the whole reason he was agitated because he'd been teased all day by these youths around the, the flats. And he had no way of coming back and thank goodness you, that didn't eventuate. Yeah, no, that was that was good. So that was one of the bigger challenges. It's, it's difficult decision to seek to deploy your firearm because of the, you, you know the consequences could be, not only for that person but for you. You then were seconded to work on the bushfires, Ed, where you also prepared briefs for the coroner? Not myself. I was the mortuary coordinator. So uh, what that meant was also every day you had to go and get particular forms from the mortuary twice a day. There was also New South Wales police deployed as photograph in the mortuary, so I was in charge of them. Any police members that were working in the mortuary, I was in charge of those as well. Just to explain, if you like, I'll explain the DFI process. Yeah, sure. There's five phases. There's the scene, obviously. There's the mortuary, which is obviously where the processing's done. There's the anti-mortem phase, which is used to be done by the missing person squad, and I'm sure isn't that. What they do, there's a yellow form and a pink form absolutely duplicated. The yellow one's the anti-mortem, the pink one's the post-mortem. I'd be listed, I'd say Ed Pollard's missing, believed in this bushfire. So the police would go to Ed Pollard's house and get anything like photos, what he was last wearing, jewellery, maybe some hair, hair off a hairbrush for DNA. We'd get medical records, dental records, and a thing called a Guthrie card, which was in the 60s. They started taking blood from infants for medical purposes and stored on a card. And we were able to access those for identification purposes only with a coronial warrant. So we did a couple of them from the kids' hospital and it's great evidence because it's your blood. It's not being matched with anyone else's, it's yours. Anyway, and then there's the fourth phase, which is the reconciliation phase, which is charged as the state, then state coroner's assistance unit. And that's to put the anti-mortem and the post-mortem together. And therefore, that's where you form the brief to present to the coroner. And then the fifth phase is the briefing phase. So that was what we were charged with, with the the phase four, the reconciliation phase, and then presenting that to the to the coroner. How did that sit with you, that responsibility? Oh, it was, might sound a bit gross, but I found it fascinating. Like, there was t- interesting times. Like, on a Saturday morning, we'd have to go through the property, and we allocated a, an office in the mortuary, and one day, sailing around the corner, and what the coroners do, they had initial investigations on the deceased people, so you just was suddenly waltzing through six trolleys of deceased people to get to this room. And I thought, okay, it was interesting. <laughs> people's possessions, but also people's bodies tell a story about them. Yes, absolutely. Like um, an autopsy, there was a very interesting, interesting article in The Age about an autopsy, how an autopsy's done. And having seen a few of them, 
they're um, they're confronting, but they're interesting, and it, it, in some cases they just need to be done to establish a cause of death. And a lot of times the families don't want them done, but other times families do want them done because they find out what happened to their loved one. What do they say in the homicide squad? Every contact leaves a trace, and certainly that trace is often revealed in the body. Yeah, exactly. You know, these people die naturally for a reason, and it's unfortunately sometimes the only way they can find out what happened is the invasive process of an autopsy. Ed, you then went to Melbourne prosecutions. How would you describe the need for welfare in those days? <laughs> Look, they they increased the workload of the prosecutions unit without resourcing, and it's, I'm not criticising for that, but it's just the fact of life it was. And so we had people in and out of there, in the senior sergeant's office, having welfare discussions, and it got to stage one day the doorknob fell off of the, the office door because it had been open and shut so many times. So they go and source a screwdriver to get a, to put it back on. No further reflection on that? Oh, no, look, it was just the time. As I've said to people, the men's changing room at four o'clock looked like a Greco-Roman wrestling bout. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start to realise that, you know, you weren't coping, Ed? And I know it's not something that everyone wants to discuss, so thank you for being brave enough to discuss it today. When did you find that you weren't coping? What were the signs? Just feeling overwhelmed. Like one day I was in court just reading out a summary and also had a panic attack. Just for no reason, I didn't see it coming and I had to hand over to a colleague and leave. And from that day on, I found it very difficult to read those summaries. Just overwhelming with workload, anxious, angry and just feeling like I can't do this anymore. I've got to, got to leave. Were you having issues with sleeping? Because I often know that's one of the symptoms, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Sleeping's a problem when you... Because your mind just doesn't shut down. It's thinking, thinking, thinking. So sleeping, that doesn't help because you, now you're tired during the day. So that was difficult. But with the PTSD, the message I'd like to get out is if you're feeling the strain, go early, don't break, like I did, because it does, doesn't affect you. It affects your family, your relationships. It's put a severe strain on my, my marriage for a while, which I'm not proud about. The welfare services now are greatly improved. The day when I was... a Young constable was, let's go down the pub and have a debrief about it. And they've got a fairly robust welfare system, either through Victoria Police or through the association. They have a, their, their welfare section, so there's plenty of chances to speak to someone, but by all means, speak to someone, make the move. What difference did it make to you to get some professional support? Well, I was diagnosed in, originally by what I call a general psychologist, and it's no disrespect to them. What I, in fact, needed was a trauma specialist psychologist. So dealing with the, what I call the general psychologist was, yeah, okay, it helped a little bit, but the trauma psychologist, that was the big breakthrough because they have actual techniques in dealing with trauma, not just general mental health issues. And again, I'm not deriding the general psychologist. You just needed a specialist. Yeah, that's what I mean. People like myself need a trauma specialist psychologist rather than a a general psychologist because they've got specific techniques to deal with symptoms of trauma and relax, relaxation methods, sleeping methods and all that sort of stuff. So that's, they're the people that, as I said, they've got the Blue Hub thing now, which they've got trauma psychologists specifically trained to deal with police. Uh, that's up and running. I wasn't able to get afforded that, unfortunately, at the time due to workload of those psychologists. 
and I went with a private trauma psychologist referred to by my then injury management consultant. Anyone in the job or listening out, you know, listening to this podcast and this interview today, what advice would you give them if they sort of felt like they weren't coping? Because it's still a big stigma in the job, isn't it, about seeking assistance? Yeah, to some degree, I think it is. I think it's certainly improved. But I'd speak to a colleague, a supervisor, because really, to be honest with you, once you do declare that to a supervisor, a supervisor's got an obligation, a duty of care almost, to take it further. So just speak to someone. I know a lot of people aren't comfortable speaking to their spouses about it, but and I can see why in some cases, and that's a judgment call by that member. At least just speak to someone, probably a supervisor. Just say, listen, boss, I'm, I'm just I'm done. So how's life today, Ed? Oh, it's great. Um, as I said, I'm on long service leave, transitioning retirement. So just the um, not not having to sort of get up and go into work, put on a uniform and do the jobs and stuff is, is good. I really enjoyed the roles I did, I've had. I've been very lucky that I've, I've, I, I was seconded to the Discipline Advisory Unit where I finished up, and that was a really rewarding job, helping to weed out the bad ones amongst us. Um, and there are bad ones amongst us, but what you've got to keep in mind, the bad ones, probably half of 1% of the very good ones that are out there doing such a great job every day. Now, looking back at, you know, by the time you retire, it'll be 44 years in the job next year. How would you sum up your career? It's been very diverse. Yeah, diverse, interesting. As I said, I've been very lucky to, like, for things like when I was at um, Mooney Ponds, the Guns and Roses concert was up at Calder Raceway. We went up there for security and we were standing at the, the base of the stage where Guns and Roses were playing. Things like just such an interesting job. And I'd just like to say to members out there, there's such a diverse amount of roles that you can play if you if you choose to do that. It's just a matter of deciding what you want to do. If you want to be detective for the rest of your life, that's so be it. That's fine. I, I had the chance, I said, to go to the air wing, um, I, which meant I couldn't be detective because back in then there was a directive 97, I think it was, or 94, that if you didn't do DTS a, a year after you were promoted, you don't get another chance. And I had the chance to go flying, so I took that chance. Um, and I said, um, going to prosecutions meant I could go to the State Current Assistance Unit, which meant I could do the DVI roles and go overseas three times. Um, and I was seconded from Melbourne Prosecutors to the Discipline Advisory Unit, which was a fantastic, again, a great career opportunity that a lot of people try to get to that can't, and I was actually seconded there. So I've been very lucky that I've been able to get to those specialist roles um, how I did. So, yeah, it's just been a, a fascinating job. Finally, Ed, what does the future hold for you? Um, look, I don't know. Um, probably some travel, I think. Hopefully if I buy the right tax lottery ticket one day, I'll <laughs> get over there, but that's a matter of chance. Um, I'm just enjoying having a rest for a while. So but probably some travel plans, I think, in the future. But really, I've got no definitive plans. I've got to, I've got to get a hobby because... Apparently Fox sells a hobby, according to my wife, so that's, that's all right. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with me on the Crime Couch today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch.